a Podcast One production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. To describe Caroline Buchanan as a BMX rider or mountain biker just isn't going to cut it. An eight-time world champion and two-time Olympian? Still not enough. She's an athlete with a purpose, a purpose that extends well beyond the track. Competitively, she pretty much put BMX on the map and became a household name in Australian sport. Off the track, she's a businesswoman, brand, advocate and role model. While her sport is classified as extreme, it was a horrific accident off the track in 2017, which not only threatened her career, but her life as well. Her physical and mental strength has been challenged not only through the trauma of the accident, but her excruciatingly painful two-year recovery to get back on the bike and return to competitive racing with the Tokyo Olympics in her sights. For Caroline, though, she still remembers the feeling of when she first hopped on the bike. I was five years old. I was admittedly like that little tomboy, followed in my brother's footsteps. Like he jumped out of trees. He wore baggy clothes. I wore baggy clothes. Like um, anything my brother Sam did, so good name, Sam. Uh, he got me into it. So we were five years old, drove past the local BMX track. Mom and dad and my brother and we basically just as a family started racing. At the time I was doing taekwondo and tennis and all mm. these other sports. But for some reason, like I was just really drawn to the challenge of racing BMX. Nothing deterred me. I was just like, I love this sport. I love that dance of like risk and reward and what you put on the line and um, really drawn more towards that. So yeah, from five, I really got that itch to continue with it. Because you mentioned other sports, taekwondo and golf. I was another sport of yours. Tell me about that. I find I don't see you as a golfer, which I think is fantastic. No. (laughs) Randomly enough, yeah, like when I was growing up, uh, basically any sport that I could do, uh, we lived on a golf course too. So I'd play every Saturday, loved my golf. And then from school, I mean, any opportunity I had to like get out of school or play weekend sport, I was basically signed up to it. Yeah, did swimming, did everything. It was a real decider for me at nine years old. My mum and dad were like, do you want to go to the world championships in Paris and take your cabbage patch doll or do you want to get your black belt in Taekwondo? So I almost got my black belt in Taekwondo at age nine and decided that BMX Paris with my cabbage patch doll was my future. I can't believe at nine years old you went to the world championships and in Paris. What did you have to do to be able to get to that level and have that opportunity at nine? It's incredible. Yeah. I know I look back now and I'm like, man, I was dedicated as a kid. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> Still are. My parents sort of, they knew from like a pretty young age. We went through uh, like Video Easy, a video store, and I would have been about three at the time. And my parents were like, you know, okay, Sam, Caroline, pick something out. And she thought that I was going to get like some Disney documentary. And I ended up getting a Nadia Comaneci gymnastics perfect 10 documentary <laughs> on her and my mom's like this three-year-old's insane like why wow. are you picking this and she said I just watched on repeat I've watched this I did gymnastics at the time but I just was drawn to like her and success and winning and um so they saw that little bit of sparkle from like sort of about mm. three and when I was eight they're like we want to give you every opportunity so started racing state level through to national level at age eight and um 
yeah, competed in a world championship in Australia and Melbourne at eight. And I had no idea, like, it's so cute looking back at the video now. And I'm like waving to the crowd and <laughs> not focusing on my like pre warm up or anything. And I'm just like, gates almost dropping. And <gasps> that's awesome. Yeah. So to go to that um, international worlds, you had to compete at that national level in Australia. So mm. just follow that progression through to the world level. I love it that you were drawn to the Olympics as a three-year-old, yet chose a sport that wasn't an Olympic sport back then. Yeah. <laughs> did you still have hopes for the Olympics or, and what did you think your career then or, you know, your sporting future in BMX would look like? I was really drawn to the Olympics, but I never was like discouraged that BMX was an Olympic sport. Mm-hmm. We had so many avenues with, I started mountain biking at 15 as well. So between doing BMX and mountain biking, two different cycling disciplines, my calendar was so full. And when I was 16 years old, we got that announcement that it was going to be in the Olympic Games in Beijing. I would have been too young. You had to be 19 to make the selection mm. for the squad. So at that point, I was like, okay, I'm missing Beijing. I'm going to like set my goals for the following Olympics in London um, and just continue with BMX and mountain biking and my career. Just going back, when you were a kid, did you have any bad accidents? Were there any like pretty, I know you've had some since and we'll go into that as well, but as a kid, what kind of accidents did you have in BMX and how did they affect you? Not too many. Um, I got like the death wobbles at the bottom of the hill Hmm. and went straight first into the the jump and that was at eight and tore my whole chin open. So I got stitches. But besides that, like I didn't really have many injuries Mm. um, until I got to really my elite career and into, I would say the last five years of my career, I've Mm -hmm. had probably the most injuries prior to the 15 years before that, where I was on like a really good streak. Um, My brother had a bad accident. So he actually broke his neck and uh, I was... 11 at the time and he Mm. was 13 so quite young Mm. I knew that risk reward early because my parents laid it on the line they're like all right your brother's already broken his neck in a Mm. sport that you love and do you want to continue and at the time there was a fad that neck braces came into the sport and I started wearing one of those bit of complications with that as well that provided you know they actually weren't as safe as we thought they were Mm. so yeah I signed up to knowing that risk reward and just continued with what I loved and Yeah, I was fortunate that the accidents that I've had and the major injuries that I've had haven't actually been on a bike. They've been in an off-road vehicle. So so strange. You can can never tell, you know, what's (laughs) going to happen or how you could potentially get injured. Um, What about mentors? Did you watch BMX Bandits or did you, obviously, um, you were drawn to Nadia, but were there other mentors in your life who, either in BMX or in sport, who helped you along your way? Well, yeah, when I started, there wasn't a lot of girls. So Mm. I raced the boys till I was 11 years old. I was really inspired by them. Luke Medill, who was on our Beijing Olympic team and Australia Red Bull athlete, he was always like someone I idled and had his posters on my walls Mm. and now he's my skills coach. So, um, (laughs) yeah, and then I had a lot of help along the way from people like Lane Beachley, who I was part of her Aim for the Stars Foundation for three years and Mm. then she just became a solid rock in my career too. She gave me so much advice along the line, um, sort of to stay true to who I am, but she pioneered being that female to win multiple world titles. She said to me after I won my first one, she's like, you're going to break my record, you'll beat seven. And I was like, you're crazy. No, I'm not. But that little <laughs> bit of belief. And then I went on to beat eight and recontacted her back and said, 
Lane, I'm sorry, I love you, but I beat your record. Um, <laughs> so she's been a real um, solid one. Just anything from I'd call her to do with politics or bullying or like how you be mm. this world champion athlete with a big target on your back and and still, you know, remain resilient and like mm. have that energy to deal with that. So she was just really good for anything that I came to her with. You mentioned before you had to wait until you were 19 to compete in the Olympics in BMX. You were 18 and world champion when Beijing was on, when it made its debut. That would have been incredibly frustrating to be world champ, but, but just fall so short. Well, luckily I was world champion mountain biking at the time. So I knew that like I couldn't go to the Olympics, even though I was racing the girls. And it was actually nice to sort of take that step back and mm. wait because I wasn't completely, I think, mentally ready. Mm. Like I was still quite a young athlete and even though some sports like gymnastics, like they go so, so young. So young. Swimming as well, don't they? Yeah. For BMX, it's that um, the fear factor and, you know, it is a high-risk sport. So I mm. think it's more the action sport discipline that they categorise it into. Is 19 too, do you think that's the right age? Do you think that's too too late do you think that's too I old? I now look at all of these new action sports coming into the Olympics. So Tokyo with us, mm. obviously you got surfing, you got skateboarding, freestyle BMX, speed climbing. Mm-hmm. Action sport is really opening up a lot of doors. It's not just, you know, your mainstream sports now that are those core Olympic sports. Mm. Initially it was always the winter sports that had the tour mm. of rights and the, you know, extreme sports that I looked at and the summer games when BMX got in, we were the bandits. Like we weren't very <laughs> respected. Um, the first Olympic Games, I have to tell you that. Mm. But come 2012, it was still out crowds. Every athlete wanted to be at BMX. We were the cool kids on the block again. So <laughs> now I'm seeing all these new sports come in um, and they do have really young. There's like 12-year-old skaters that are qualifying. So I think they should drop, you mm. know, that age now that there's all these other action sports that are coming in younger. Mm. That would be a... A huge goal that, you know, if anyone could have influence, that'd be good to see. So you had to wait um, until London. In London, you were ranked number one in the world. You were world champion. What were you thinking when you arrived in London? Did you feel that pressure? Did you feel um, consumed by it? Or what was running through your head when you arrived in London? It was pretty overwhelming. I remember like I just had this attitude of like, I just want to win at all costs and, you know, do my country proud had a lot of my blinkers on. We missed the opening ceremony. We were the second week of the Olympics. So we'd planned to come in, get the job done and then mm. go to the closing ceremony and leave. I think some of the things that really unraveled me was that personal belief to go there and not only, you know, have your goals, but to have that belief that I actually could be in lane one on the inside advantage, have had number one qualifying position and be in that potential to win. Mm. I think when I got there, a lot of the external factors really overwhelmed the performance. So, you know, looking at my competitors who are carrying Olympic torches for the country and the enormity of the Olympic Games. So I think that sort of overwhelmed for me. I was looking at the other athletes and what was the Red Bull endorsements and everything that was like shining and visa deals and I was like, man, this is huge. Mm. And it stripped away, you know, the fact that we all just race each other. You take all that away from it. Mm. We've all raced each other for the last six years coming in. Yeah, I, I absolutely got overwhelmed. I was on that start gate. I was watching um, 
it was like the royal family and David Beckham staring back at me and totally forgot about racing. So yeah, I chose lane three and by that point um, I was already too worried about the local hometown favourite who I just gave her lane one, even though I'd <laughs> earned that spot from winning the semi-final. And what went through your mind when you made that decision? Because it's lane one you want, right? Yeah, you want that inside advantage. And if you win the qualifying and the rounds quarter semifinals like I did, then, you know, you generally go lane one, you get that inside advantage and you keep that momentum flowing. But for me, I got up there and I was like, she's the favorite, you know, I'm like 63 kilo and she's 85 and like this big girl and she's going to cut me off. And it was that defensive mindset that just yeah. unraveled. And um, at that point, like I lost that optimism to stay in the fight, mm. to realize like we all have that equal playing field and to remain in that. And I just went on defense mode, like, I don't want her to cut me off and I don't want this to happen. And it's my race to lose. And in that split second, it was like, it was all over. I got cut off, went from seventh to fifth, crossed the line and was like, I'm never making this mistake again. Which I think partially was a little bit to do with putting all that emphasis on sort of being quite young and being that first Olympic Games and waiting for so long and being mm. the favourite mm. to like put your whole self-worth on that event. Mm. And it takes the performance out of it, it takes that shine, it takes that natural performer that, you know, if you're an underdog, it's easy. Mm. <laughs> and mm. sometimes you've got to keep that mentality about it that, it keeps that healthy respect for your competition to, to go out there and, and thrive and shine. Do you remember what you felt like when that race ended and then the next morning? Oh, I was gutted. I was <sighs> gutted. <laughs> but there was so much support in the Olympic Games. We had um, like our liaisons. So there was Lane Beachley there. There was mm. Steve War. There was so many athletes that were there just to sort of help and regroup. Um, from there I set some crazy goals the following year that, I wanted to be mentally so prepared. So mm. the following year, I wanted to win three world titles in 72 days in three countries, three different bikes, three different energy systems. And I walked away with two. So I was like, that was a huge lesson to teach me. Like, you've really got to aim high yeah, and um, not be in that defensive mindset. So I just threw everything out there and realized like, once you get on that roll and you are in that performance state and you're mm. hungry, you can really excel. What was different about your mindset after those Olympics than pre those Olympics? What did you change exactly? You said you set yourself goals, but what, what did you have to do? Who did you have to talk to? Was there anything that you did that changed that? Yeah, a big debrief. So I obviously worked on some of my weaknesses, which was my start, um, the weakness of like sticking to a game plan and having that belief and executing um, from start to finish. So really worked on that. I worked on my breathing. So maintaining obviously your emotions on the day, it was my mind that just derailed and my body wasn't able to perform. So mm. I actually did some meditation retreats. I went and met like a chi master who taught me how to do like chi breathing into my stomach and then implemented the following year into my like performance. So when I'd go up on that start gate, I would go back to like sending energy from my hands and my feet, you know, back into that mm. lower core and just really like, you know, relaxing. So when I won the world title the following year, I was just sitting on the start gate in lane one, Olympic <laughs> champion next to me. And I had my little thumb like just a below my belly button. I'm just breathing into my stomach. Mm. And it's like, I won and I crossed the line and I was like, 
you just needed to like let yourself Mm. do that so yeah I think it was the breathing and the mental side and containing my emotions having a healthy respect for my competition but really coming in yeah not defensively um, trying to not lose yeah for those who don't know BMX how does it work what makes it so scary and thrilling all at the one time Okay, start to finish, you're on the gate, you've got no white lines, eight competitors, so you've got seven other girls around you. When you drop in, you're coming off like a three-storey building, so it's about eight and a half metres tall. The ramp, when you get to the bottom, you G out uh, and then you hit the first jump. So the first jump's roughly about 12 metres. You're travelling quicker than your school zone, you're going like 60, 55, 60 kilometres an hour. And by that point, yeah, you're at your max cadence, you're at that high velocity you don't really breathe until you hit the first jump. So when you set at the hill and then you power down, take a breath at the first jump, a normal track is about 400 metres and it takes about 35 to 40 seconds. So, yeah, generally they're downhill um, going over jumps and obstacles and around the turns and you go through your rounds, quarter, semis, finals. So normally you have about 20 minutes break in between each and you go up and do it again and that's BMX. You lay it all on the line and... Yeah, the champagne always tastes so much sweeter because it's not a sporting event that I'd put money on. It's quite unpredictable and there's always crashes and chaos and Mm. the smallest mistake you can drop back like four or five places. So that's what I love about it, that it's so challenging and Mm. every track is different. I was about to say, what part of it do you love the most? Do you love going up on those jumps, getting airborne? Do you love the starts? Do you love the finish? What is it? Yeah, all of it. And I love too that like I'm 29 now and I've been doing this since I was five. I still love like piles of dirt. Like when you really <laughs> simplify it, like I'm that little girl that played in the dirt and rode kids' bikes and I still love playing in the dirt and riding a kid's bike for a living. So that's pretty special about the sport. There's not a big segregation in the sport. You don't have the pros on this tour and the kids on this tour. Mm. I'll go to the local track, which I raced when I was five years old and jump on the gate and do practice and there's you know, little girls next to me that are wearing like my signature gloves or there's two-year-olds who have been on my little signature bikes and (laughs) you're like, man, you can have so much influence but there's no like divide and I think that's quite special about the sport. And then how you basically judged in BMX, I love it. It's whoever crosses a line is your winner. There's no judging. There's no other rules. Um, So basically the qualifying, your top four from each round qualifies to the next. So eight people on a start top four go through. So your quarterfinal is your top four, your semifinal is your top four. And then once you're in that final, it's a free-for-all. No white lines, no rules, just whoever crosses the line is your champion. Very black and white, very clear. Mountain biking is a little different. I do multiple different disciplines. It's generally always whoever crosses the line, but there are a few judge categories. So a new discipline called speed and style is got two jumps and they're a trick judged feature. And then it's your speed over the course. So it's head-to-head with two riders. Mm-hmm. You've got two trick features. And basically once your time gets to the bottom, they then deduct your trick. And that's who's the end result is who you win us. So that's a real blend of your speed and style. It's a blend of free starts, a blend of those races. And it's a really good progression, I think, for for females moving mm. forward. And it's something we've never had. So it's only fresh within the last year the opportunities for women to do that. Switching between mountain biking and BMX, 
Is there a challenge there with switching between the both of them? You, you talked about different energy systems that you have to use, training. Take me through. How is it different? It's been, yeah, it's been a blessing. Um, any athlete I think out there that's contemplating being a dual sport athlete or, you know, whether you're in athletics and there's two different kinds you can do, I think it's been the biggest strength of my career and mm. I totally recommend any athlete that's out there, if you're talented at both, do both. You look mm. at the likes of obviously Elise Perry and she mm. was in cricket and you got soccer and then me with BMX and mountain bike. Like you never know what's going to happen in the world. You never know the direction of the sport or whether something will be taken out of the Olympic Games or be put in or where it is. So to jump between the two, it's helped my career with the longevity. It's helped when I've been injured and mm. have sponsors from two different um, basically industries. And I've always found it really fun. Like BMX has always been the Olympic sport, the competition and mountain bike for me has been the friends, the, you know, iconic ski runs and the slopes and all these random ski villages in small little like Austrian towns and you've got the cowbells and the cows and cheese fields and um, super different. So, yeah, I like the diversity and just sort of switch off that it's given me too. Let's move forward to the Rio Olympics. You talk about the mindset that you were at London and being overwhelmed and distracted and what you did afterwards. So how are you different heading into Rio to where you were last? Were you focused? Did you know what to expect this time and that made a big difference? Yeah, I knew what to expect. Um, came in with more of that plan. Rio was really good. I won the time trial world champ again the year before. Mm-hmm. So I'd come in strong. I was hitting all my markers. I squatted 150 in the Olympic Village like three days out. So I knew that, you know, my 1RM power output was there. Wow. I'd cleaned 90 kilos and this was at 62 body weight. So mm-hmm the highest power and strength I've ever been. Rio was like really good. I found like there was a bit of like fear in the village and it was a bit odd like getting on vehicles to go out to your venues and there's like machine guns next to you and Mm. good morning, you're going to breakfast. And (laughs) some of that was different about that games. But overall I was a lot more like calm and prepared, got through the rounds and it was actually just like a mistake in the semifinal. Mm. I was lined up on the gate. I had two Russians next to me. And they squeezed me at the bottom of the hill. So I sort of came together and I just went too low and like soaked up the first jump. My handlebars moved forward and then I tried to like ride out the lap. Got to the first corner, but because my bars moved all the way forward, I basically like jackknifed, went over the bars and just crashed into the first turn. Mm. So yeah, Rio come second time around, second chance. Um, I got knocked out in the semi. And the weird thing about it was, I was devastated again. It brought back a lot of like London Mm. memories, but I walked up into the stands. I had the Australian flag around my neck and it was thousands of Colombians because the Colombian Mm. girl, Mariana Pajon, she'd won the Olympics before. And I got this standing ovation. So it was her family and grandparents and they Mm. all stood up and then it was just walls of people, thousands. And we're in this like little lull break between the semifinal and the finals. And I'm just this athlete that walks up in the stands and the whole stand erupt and they give me the standing ovation. I was like, this is Pierre de Cuban and this is the Olympic spirit. Like this is my Olympic moment. Like whether Mm. I go to another Olympics again or whether I've won or lost, like there was always this healthy respect Mm. between me and Mariana. We'd never taken each other out to win like we'd always fought fair over the years and um yeah so that was pretty cool like that gave me chills to go man whether I won today or whether I just got knocked out and walked into the stands 
it was this same reaction from the crowd. So that's the power of the Olympics. And And that must have been a big moment for you to actually decide to watch the final as well. Yeah, I thought, why not? All the Aussies, all my family, everyone had come over. So I was like, let's just go up and, you know, make the most of it and and be present and, you know, come back hopefully in Tokyo and and have that third time lucky attempt. (laughs) Let's talk about the next year after that. Because things and life and your career took a very different turn, didn't it, when you had your accident? Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, 2017 was, it was going really strong. I'd been doing this whole living the ride journey with my ex-partner at the time and traveling the world, doing mountain biking. I'd won an overall Crankworks World Cup Series title that year. Coming into New Year's, just everything shifted and yeah, that night, uh, basically rolled an off-road vehicle buggy with one of my friends. Um, I went under the vehicle and caught the roll cage. So luckily it went on back onto four wheels and didn't just pinch me underneath it. Um, when I grabbed the roll cage sort of on my chest and went under, the weight of the vehicle um, snapped my sternum, which protects all your internal organs. Um, it snapped and then the bones punctured my heart wall lining, punctured my both double and collapsed both my lungs and pneumothorax then. Um, yeah, my heart wall was bleeding out into there. Obviously had that, broke my nose at the same time. And I was 45 minutes, no cell service from Kuma Hospital. Wow. So once I got to Kuma Hospital, one of my best friends, he did like a guided meditation for that 45 minutes, just breathe, you know, in one, two, out one, two, in one, two. And luckily he did. So he really like kept me calm, kept like the bleeding low, which was the best thing we could have done Mm. to not panic. Um, And I just sort of, yeah, I'd done a few meditation retreats over the years and things to help my riding and never thought that that would potentially like save my life, but Mm. it did. So what happened, you know, that night to go into that state to just do that guided meditation breath for my friend and then for myself got to the Canberra hospital, got my lungs drained, was in ICU for like the next 10 days and um, yeah, managed to drain all that blood out of my lungs and then waited three months until I got my first sternum surgery, which I went to the US to get that done. It was quite hard to find a surgeon in Australia that would do that surgery. It's not common. Normally you have fractures in your sternum or they cut it vertical to do like an open heart surgery. Mm. But because I'd snapped it transverse across and snapped it all the way through and displaced it, um, you're at high risk around your heart. Um, So every time it was like you sign a dotted line, 50% mortality rate when you do this surgery, if any complications happen or you get an infection. 50% mortality rate for that surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I became numb, honestly. Like I remember just laying there being like, I want to live a healthy life. I want to be able to get back on the bike and do what I love. I need to be fixed. So, yeah, you put huge trust in the surgeons and what they're doing. And the first surgery thought all went well, waited my six months, returned to like (sighs) sport, returned to training, and I heard a snap. And I was like, oh, went in to get scanned, I'd snapped a titanium plate in my chest. Oh, so, Did you feel that? You say you heard it. What did you feel? Yeah, well, this <gasps> is mid-2018. So by that point, it's like it had been nine months since my accident, finally getting back on the bike. Mm. Yeah, and I was just like doing some warm-up stretching and just heard this like pop. And then every time I rotated and moved, I knew something was loose or moving. Um, yeah, I got the scans and they're like, you've snapped the titanium plate. It obviously 
wasn't healed 100%. So one of the biggest mistakes that we made through that was to not rescan. So I always recommend now, like if you're a professional athlete, you've got to be your own doctor. You've got to, you know, take every advice, seek second and third opinions um, and rescan always, you know, they doctor might say, oh, it'll be three months and that'll heal. But I always say, make sure you scan it because you may not have been fully healed. So I unfortunately wasn't fully healed at that time, but that I returned to the sport and it was weak enough for the bone to start moving and then the metal to snap. So rebooked in for another surgery. Um, and then that uh, long plate system within four days after the second surgery, those bolts had backed themselves out. So got another surgeon on board in the States as well. And it took two of them to work together collaboratively. They're both, you know, normally your cardiothoracic surgeons, they're doing your heart transplants and things Mm. like that. So they don't often do, you know, a bike athlete. But, yeah, they worked together and um, they needed two people because they needed to hold my sternum and my rib cage up, thread wire cables between my heart and my sternum, come back through the existing bolt holes. So at that point I'd had oh, 16 or so bolts through my chest wow. from two plates. So they came back through, bolted it together and then put a different H plate system. So they were like, this is your third time lucky. We really don't know any other way to like fixate your chest. Um, you've got two cables, you know, completely bolted through um, and then you've got the plate and the bolts too. So uh, they're like, we need you to literally do nothing again, um, rest. So it was don't lift your hands above your head. So uh, you're in this like T-Rex position. For how, um, long? For the, how long? Don't lift your head above above your head for the first two months minimum. So, you know, you're washing your hair over a basin. You're not driving for two months. You're not lifting anything heavier than like your sort of plate and bowl. So you're not like lifting ke- uh, kettles. You're not like pushing doors open with your hands. Yeah. So. You get you come very used to like opening doors with your feet. And yeah. Just yeah. really like, yeah, calm breaths because you don't want to get worked up or anytime you breathe or cough, there's movement through your chest. So Oh wow, yeah. You don't want to get sick or anything because you don't want to be coughing, do you? No, so you can't brace it like you just normally put a cast on and that would obviously heal. You can't cast your chest and stop breathing. So yeah, we then jumped forward um, nine months from that surgery. I had my rescan, and they're like, you're good to go. Like finally this is healed. Um, I'd been able to do all testing at that point to know, you know, do I have enough vitamins? Am I healthy enough? I got my vitamin D levels up, which were a little bit low. Mm-hmm. So um, got my vitamin D up, got my calcium up, calcified properly, healed my bones and waited nine months um, and then finally was able to return. So, How long after your accident? Is that then? Well, that was only about a year, I'd say a year and three months ago now. Right. That I actually returned to full, yeah, training and and everything. So I sort of 2017 and 18 and part of 19 was a complete two and a half year yeah. write-off for me. You must have been like a frog in a sock, like someone like you who's always out there, energetic, and then literally to be told you cannot even cough or sneeze or anything, sudden movements, that must have been entirely frustrating for someone like you, Caroline. Yeah, very frustrating. And to sort of feel so vulnerable and fragile for so mm. long, but I wanted to be back on that start gate. I wanted to start mountain biking and everything again. So it was that real choice to say like, 
I'm prepared of the Mm. risks. Um, Luckily, all the surgeons were like, you can't physically do this on a bike. Like what you've sustained from this vehicle and the weight, Mm. you can't do on a bike. And I was like, sign me up. So, Did they ever tell you, you know, sometimes you hear of um, just how horrific the injuries were for you. Did they give you some kind of indication? Did they give you an analogy of just how how bad those injuries were? Had they? Um, Yeah, well, basically... If I'd had any more internal bleeding or hadn't maintained calm, you know, your cardiac arrest and all of that is very high because I had punctured my heart wall lining. In terms of how much force it takes to break your sternum completely, luckily that I was strong and I remember it went slow-mo and when I went under the vehicle, I basically grabbed the roll cage and bench pressed it. So I just went through my mind like, don't get pinched, don't get Mm. pinched. Um, And I was able to press it. They sort of said, you know, if you didn't catch a roll cage, you wouldn't be here. Um, So where luckily it broke, it was there and it's quite a thick part of your chest. But if Mm. it was any higher, then it would have been, you know, you know, neck and paralyzed and airways. And we're in a podcast, so you're just pointing to your breast line just then, and it couldn't even go a centimeter really higher. No, lower or higher, I wouldn't be alive. So wow, potentially it was the best case scenario for that accident or what to happen and that I was really strong at the time. Um, I had come off, you know, that Olympic Games not long earlier and a really solid successful season of 2017. So yeah, I was strong and I was fit and I was young. And I think from being in an action sport and everything for so Mm. long, when you crash, everything goes slow-mo anyway. So Mm. I was able to realize what was happening, see that roll cage, grab it and sort of bench press it as it went over me. And then now, Obviously now I'm good and I'm healthy and I'm back competing and I've had crashes and I've tested it out and <laughs> I've had rescans, you know, even just the other week and I mean it's the strongest it's ever looked and can ever be. So I just want to go back to, be in. <laughs> to give me and everyone an idea of how long from the accident to when you turned up at the hospital did that take? How long are we talking? So yeah, we're talking about four hours. From the time I got transferred to Kuma Hospital and, yeah, it was like New Year's Eve. So the um, ambulance that was actually at, was meant to be at Kuma, was actually on its way to Canberra. So I had to wait for the ambulance to then get back to Kuma Hospital. Um, And, yeah, it was pretty scary at Kuma Hospital because they weren't a level of hospital that could Mm. put lung drains in. Mm. So... We knew what was wrong. We knew it was bleeding. We knew it was going on. And they were just like kept tripping me out on all these drugs. And we're just like, you just need to like maintain calm and we'll get you obviously to the next hospital. So Holy yeah, Jesus. once I got to the next hospital, um, yeah, then they lung drained me and did everything else and I became stable. But it was a real blur. Like I had friends come and visit me that I don't even remember came and visited me in ICU and I would say it took me like a solid week to sort of consciously then grasp like what had happened and then ask the doctor obviously like, so when can I ride again? Yeah, (laughs) first question. (laughs) Well, I just, and it was your friend that, you know, went through meditation with you and the breathing, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in. Is that just four hours? Four hours is a long time, Caroline, to be in pain with your life on the line. That is a long time and that whole time was just the breathing. Did you ever go to a place where you thought, what the hell is happening? Oh, yeah. Will I ever ride again? Will I walk yeah. again? Will I live again? Did Adrenaline, you go there? I think started to wear off about 20 minutes into the trip. Um, and I said to my best friend, Kai, who was doing the meditation for me, 
I did. I turned to him and I said, you know, like, I'm not ready to die. I have so much to live for. And you do start processing. I remember the thoughts of like, okay, I know something's wrong with my chest because it was the sensation of when you uh, like knock your air out and you get winded, mm. but you always like are able to breathe again. It was the sensation of you be winded, but you can't breathe again because of my lungs had collapsed. There's nothing to breathe against. Mm. So it's like a airway or ball that just like dissipates Mm. so there's no airway to stop and then bring it back in so you just feel constantly winded um anyway my best friend was like amazing he's like he'd done one of his lungs before crazy broken a femur and everything else like our world does Hmm. so yeah he was perfect in that moment um but I did you know I thought how am I going to survive what am I going to do what do I you know, will I ever ride again? All that. Mm. But it was only at that 20 minute mark. And I completely shut that out of my mind. Mm. And I was like, all I have to focus on is my breath. And I think coming from racing, I always had this saying of like, all I need to focus on is like what I see in front of me. And that was always like when I was at the start gate or whether I was doing a jump or Mm. anything. So yeah, just focused on the breath and that really saved my life. Um, I had to focus on it anyway, because, you know, I had the air they had the airways going down into my nose and um they were had like a bag helping me breathe too so attached to like mm. the oxygen mask uh, and then so was all, there was already that rhythm and that very slight amount of air that I could feel through my nostrils so unbelievable so you're pretty much like a titanium woman now with <laughs> yeah titanium chest plates 16 bolts did you say What's going on in yeah, there? Yeah, so now I now I go through um, like x-rays in airports and things and you stand there with your arms up <laughs> and um, I get that little orange box. They generally pat my back down, but I'm like, it's actually in my chest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've got this medal in me for life, which, um, you know, now I think the main thing I have to be aware of is being an athlete that I do still want to be at the top of my game and obviously have more crashes. When I am doing mountain biking, I wear a chest plate now, so mm. that's obviously just like a little bit of precaution, which I never used to wear. And I focus a lot more obviously on my diet, my health, and a lot more detoxing, knowing that I've got metal in my system now for life. Yeah, I try to detox a little bit more because I've sort of found all the injuries and stuff. And Mm. over that two years, it was 13 surgeries. I counted in nine anesthesias. So my body went through a lot. It really weakened my immune system too. So when I started training again, I was like, man, I never used to get this tired. Like, am I deconditioned or what's going Mm. on? Um, I had some like virus issues from then overtraining end of last Mm. year. And I just thought, okay, I've got a whole new body. Like I really need to um, focus on my recovery probably more than I ever did Mm. in my previous careers. So that's been really helpful now. Obviously that's a traumatic experience. Did you have any triggers when you went back on the bike or even in the car, because obviously it didn't happen on the bike, but you knew how fragile your body was and what was going on in there and where you went to. Did you have anything like yeah. that? Yeah, um, not really triggers. If I'm around big machinery or moving objects, like I'm redoing my backyard at the moment with a new jump and hmm. little motorbike track and stuff, and we've got you know a huge digger excavator. Hmm. I find things like that if I'm around objects or vehicles or something on a hill or anything yeah, I do notice I definitely get triggered by that and mm. sort of, but no, in terms of on the bike, I never experienced that again because it was so different. Mm. Like it was, mm. yeah. And 
my mindset through it all, that tenacity just to be back on the bike, that resilient build, mm. every surgery I went through and every complication, I was just like, this too shall pass. Mm. And it did. And then now with obviously setbacks in the world and everything, going through what I did, it's like, well, this too shall pass as well. Like there will be another Olympics, but we'll be back on that mm. start gate. Like I've had to be patient in my own personal life and, you know, my career. Yeah. So it's made it a little bit easier to deal with what's going on in the world now. Because it was um, it was a bit of a race for you to be back in time for Tokyo. Are you one of the few athletes who was in contention for Tokyo that's like, I'm so glad COVID's come. It's given me, in terms of, not in terms of the health, but in terms of time, in that context, you were glad. Yeah, very glad. Like it was a blessing in disguise. Everything has that silver lining and mm. COVID was a huge silver lining. So um, to go back to the drawing board, I was only really at 80% of my strength levels and where mm. I knew I needed to be. Um, so now I've been able to go back into some heavy strength blocks. I'm working with some different trainers here in Canberra, still under the Australian Institute of Sport who writes my training program. We've been able to get my deadlifts back up to 140, my squats hey. back up to 140. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, changed some technique and I'd had some adaptions from obviously being injured and posterior-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, now between chiro and physio and neuro and massage and um, <laughs> gym trainers and everyone, we're like really just rebuilt my body like yeah. to yeah. be where it needs to be. So I'm excited. Nothing is really guaranteed for BMX. Um, I know some mm. sports had already had their qualifying now it's like the sliding scale. So the mm. events that will be coming into the Olympics closer to next year mm. will be ranked of the highest importance. So, mm-hmm. yeah, all I can do is um, hopefully be there for whenever the world opens up and put myself on that front line again and hopefully go to my third Olympic Games. You were 80%, you said, um, when COVID hit, when you came back. Where, where are you now? I'd say sitting about 90, like, yeah. If I was to sort of go in and compete now, um, I also really had took this time to like focus on more of like my health too. So, mm. yeah, I initially I didn't focus too much on posterior, you know, getting proper posture back. And with the chiropractors and people I'm working with, we're trying to basically lift my sternum um, and my shoulders, bring my neck back and sort of like almost rotate my body wow. because I'd gone into this like defensive t-rex protective state for so long it had really sort of built new ways of like movement patterns so Mm. yeah now I can finally say like I'm really pain-free and back in the gym and like nothing hurts me anymore and like there's no popping or clicking or anything that I was like having prior so yeah I look forward to to what's coming up but also what's kept me really motivated too is the direction of mountain biking is also got a new angle with a freestyle discipline. So there's now this progression of women's free ride movement in mountain biking. And for me, I've sort of pioneered in a few different levels with BMX over the years and everything. So I sort of see that as like a bit of a legacy piece mm. too um, for mountain biking to lead that. So I've got an airbag set up in my backyard and um, been working on my skills and mountain biking, aerial trick awareness and backflips and 360s and everything else. Wow, so. cool. That's super fun. Like I love, <laughs> I'm very passionate about that right now too. Saying that, 
we were meant to do this podcast a few weeks ago and we had to cancel because you had another accident and a concussion. Is concussion a thing for you? How many have you had and what impact does that have? Yeah, I've had 10 or so over the years, um, probably four solid like knockout, blackout ones. Mm. Yeah, it is something that I wear bell helmets, which are like have a MIPS mm-hmm. technology. They're really good for concussion. They come from motorsport. But yeah, it is something that you do have to rest your body. Like you feel fine. You don't physically have any injuries, but you feel slow. So those first few weeks, um, sensitivity to light, to sound, to feeling a bit foggy, to your memory, migraines, nauseous in cars, things like that is all Mm. like your post-concussion syndrome. Um, So, yeah, I haven't knocked myself out in a while, but I was just on a leisurely mountain bike ride out at Stromwell Forest Park (laughs) and um, washed my front wheel out in a turn and woke up without even realising. So, yeah, it's just one of those like random crashes that happen. Um, So, yeah, had a few slow weeks, but now back training again, passed on my neuro work and my concussion work and um what's your relationship like with fear uh it's like love hate everyone has that love hate relationship with fear (laughs) it's good though it keeps you on your toes it's that protective mechanism and over the years I've always sort of said like thank you and I've liked to when I get sweaty and get out of breath or have my heart rate start increasing I'm about to pedal into this jump that I've never jumped um I like just to sort of acknowledge it. I spent years of my career thinking that the fear will go away and that I'll just get better and I'll get more resilient. And I went through a phase of fighting it. I'd be like, oh, but I've done this a million times or I'm the world champion and I shouldn't be scared. But you can't fight it. It's no worth fighting it. So, yeah, I would visualize it and I like to put it in my pocket. So I'd literally be on the track and I'd think like, thank you. Yes, I'm about to like ride off this like crazy jump Mm. and whatever but I'm going to put you in my pocket and you're going to come along for the ride with me so as I'd visually put it in my pocket and start pedaling around the turn into this new jump I've never jumped I'd just be like okay thank you yep heart rate's coming up up sweet and everything in your brain is saying no like break and everything your body's going yes pedal go faster it's that five seconds of courage where you just have to override that fear and that fear response and then Two seconds later, you've forgotten about it. You've jumped it and you're on a high and or you've got full of adrenaline. You've overrode that fear. And, um, yeah, it's what I, I really like that feeling. And once you can conquer it time and time again and have that sort of risk-reward balance. Mm. You talk about your legacy on the track, but you know, you've created a great legacy and the brand, Caroline Buchanan, as well, for little kids off the track as well. Um, you mentioned your balance bikes that you've got for for little ones, um, clothing ranges and, and everything, but also your children's books as well. Created a line of, a series, I should say, of uh, children's books. Tell me, how did that come about? Yeah, well, it's like the parallels with you, with your book. Was it the <laughs> Princesses, Princesses Wear sneakers? sneakers? Yeah, we'll do a swap. Yeah, so <laughs> we'll do a swap. So mine, um, the books I came out with, Girls Can Be, and mm. the little character is Caroline B. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's all about being sort of resilient. So the first one was Girls Can Be Different, and it was Dress Up Day at school. And for me, I was that girl that wanted to dress up as a BMX bandit. And like I went in my full helmet and race gear <laughs> yes. and I remember I got bullied. But, you know, this whole book is about the girls can be different and mm. they can go to dress up day and how you embrace yourself and your goals. 
Um, and then the second one was, yeah, girls can be brave. And it was about this secret jump that I was planning. And after school, me and my dad would train and practice. And I was too scared to jump this double. So we got a door and we actually put it across the jump to make it safe. So if I came up short, I'd land on the door. Yeah, cool. So that whole book was about, you know, how me and my dad did that and how to be brave and have crashes. And yeah, it's been really rewarding. Mm. And then Lane Beachley, who was obviously a big mentor of mine, she helped me with her scholarship program, mm-hmm. which inspired me to do Buchanan Next Gen, mm-hmm. um, a scholarship program as well. So pretty insane to look back at, you know, the last sort of seven years and helping now 12 girls go over to the world championships, compete for Australia, have their eyes opened like I did when mm-hmm. I was nine years old. Um, but these girls are 14 and 15. They're at that like dropout rate in sport where mm-hmm. you, know, you start finding boys and work and mm-hmm. it becomes hard and um, so yeah, to give them that financial involvement to help them go to the world champs with the grant. So that has been kind of really rewarding too. Yeah. And this year we missed it obviously with COVID mm. and everything, but 2021 they'll be back on and the girls select themselves through the national championships and their success. So yeah, the ones who have put themselves on the line, um, at the nationals to basically have the scholarship and then whoever crosses the line first gets awarded, yeah, $5,000 each helps them and their family go to the worlds and more importantly that bit of belief and mentoring from me. Can you tell me, we end each podcast by asking our guests what advice they would give their 10-year-old self. So if you could tell little Caroline Buchanan, 10-year-old who just went to the world champs at nine, what would you tell her? What advice would you give her? At 10 years old, I was preparing to go to the next world championships, which was in Argentina. And I, what did I have? Oh, I'd had terrible like product on my bike. So I'd had old like pedals and I didn't do any maintenance to them. And I went to the world championships and I unclipped in the semifinal because Mm. of the mechanical. So I probably tell a 10 year old self to like, you know, work on your bikes and (laughs) expand that knowledge. Um, Knowledge is power, but more importantly, I think if I'd gotten into mountain biking a little bit earlier, I think. Mm. So the sport and the direction always pushes you to be like just, you know, just do this and mm. just race this category. So to not be just, and I think, you know, I would have loved to have started mountain biking earlier because I love it and it's given me that diversity and mm. the successful career on and off the bike I've had. So, yeah, maybe diversify a little bit earlier and have a bit more knowledge into your product and your bike and <laughs> maintenance. <laughs> Don't make those mistakes, <laughs> 10-year-old self in Argentina. <laughs> that is very cool. Caroline Buchanan, thank you for sharing your story with On Her Game. Thank you for having me, Sam. Thanks. Glad we finally got I to do know, it. I know, I'm so excited. This is amazing. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the free Podcast One Australia app or search On Her Game podcast.